Hello there, and welcome to part two of episode 13 of Words with Writers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Canadian Authors Association Toronto Branch. We are a membership-based organization for writers in all levels, areas, and genres of the writing profession. We are your hosts, Brandy Tanner and Chris Gorman. Thanks for coming back for the conclusion episode of our double feature special celebrating 100 years of Canadian Authors Association's Writers Helping Writers. Last week, we spoke with fabulous authors and CAA members R.A. Morris, Mark Leslie Lefebvre, Andrea Scott, and Rosanna Micheletta Battagelli. This week, we will share our big news about our June event, finally give you the details of our 1,000 downloads celebration, and welcome four more guests, Michael Newman, Guglielmo Dizia, Gordon K. Jones, and Genevieve Chornenki. That's right, it's going to be an eventful show. We will also have more guest cameos from previous Words with Writers guests, and we'll finish our double feature special with the news from our members. So let's get right into it. We're so excited to announce our June event, a collaboration between Canadian Authors Toronto and Editors Toronto. So Chris, who is this mystery award-winning author that we're featuring on Wednesday, June 23rd at 7.30 p.m.? Well, Brandy, drumroll please. It's somebody you may have heard of, the amazing Ian Williams. Yes, the guest for our June virtual event is the winner of the 2019 Scotiabank Giller Prize for his novel, Reproduction. Ian has won numerous other awards for his poetry and fiction and holds a PhD in English from the University of Toronto. Full details and registration links will be released in early June, so keep an eye on our website at canadianauthors.org slash toronto slash events. Oh, that's so exciting. I can't wait for that. Okay, one last announcement before we welcome today's guests. So we have reached our goal of 1,000 downloads of Words with Writers podcast, thanks to you, our loyal and beloved listeners. So in celebration, we are hosting a three-week-long contest on social media in which we will be giving away a book every three days. Past guests have generously donated copies of their books, and I hear some of them may even be signed copies. The fun begins on Sunday, May 30th on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Full instructions and prize details will be released as soon as the podcast goes live through our website, social media accounts, and email blast. That's awesome, Brandy. It's too bad we can't enter to win one of the awesome prizes ourselves. There are so many exciting things happening for our association, but right now it's time to slow things down a little. So go grab a glass of your wine or mug of tea and get ready for some great storytelling and writerly conversation.
please welcome our first guest, Michael Newman. Born in Budapest, Hungary at the end of the Second World War to Holocaust survivors, he emigrated to Canada in 1956 during the Hungarian Revolution. Upon graduation from high school, he worked as a sales representative at several businesses, started his own sales agency at the age of 27, selling parts to the fledgling cable television industry. The agency grew into the largest distributor of cable television parts in Canada. He sold his part of the business in 1997 and established a multi-residential real estate company that went public in 1999 and grew to become Interrent Real Estate Investment Trust, trading on the TSX. He retired from Interrent in 2009. He is now retired, serving on the boards of directors of several public and private companies and volunteers at Out of the Cold and Toronto Humane Society and spends his spare time writing novels. His first novel, titled Between These Walls, a historical fiction novel published in March 2020 by Friesen Press, was awarded the New York City Big Book Distinguished Favorite Award. He's currently working on a sequel. He lives on Toronto's waterfront with his wife and their dog, and they have five children and 11 grandchildren. Welcome to the show, Michael. We're excited to have you on. It's, uh, you've been one of the guests we've actually wanted to, to reach out to for quite some time. I read Between These Walls when it first came out, and I thought it's an amazing book. So, Thank you very much, Chris. Much appreciated. So, Michael, Between These Walls is your first fictional novel, uh, and you self-published it, uh, hybrid publish, through Friesen Press. What sort of promotions have been involved in your self-published? As far as publicizing uh, the book, I've entered several contests and have been lucky enough to be chosen as a winner in a couple of them, including the New York City Big Book Award. And I've also used some promoters on Facebook and on Twitter. So I've certainly uh, had quite a bit of help in publicizing the book, which I think every self-published author needs. For sure. Brandy, one of the things we hear time and time again for self-published authors is it's, it's, it's worth it, but it's a lot of work. And promotion, promotion, promotion. <laughs> you have to do a lot of self-promotion. Yes, you do, because having others promote your book costs a lot of money. So the more self-promotion you do, the more economical it is. Exactly. Well, I, I can't wait. Are you going to go ahead and give us a reading of Between These Walls? Sure. I will read from uh, Between uh, These Walls. I'll read uh, Chapter 1. So here it goes. May 4th, 1945. American Zone, west side of the River Elbe, Germany. A U.S. Army Jeep with a white star painted on its hood, bouncing and vibrating through each pothole, rambled along the single-lane dirt track on the west side of the River Elbe. Mixed strands of beech, spruce, pine, and oak encroached on the winding, dusty clay path, sometimes wrapping the road in mid-morning shadow. The shade and openness of the Jeep were a welcome respite from the brilliant sunshine and heat of an early Saxon summer. Germany had already lost the war. Berlin had been captured by the Soviets. Adolf Hitler and his mistress Eva Brown were dead, their bodies buried in the garden of the Fuhrer bunker. Chief of the Nazis wanted U-boat fleet and Hitler's successor as Germany's ruler, 
Grand Admiral Carl Dönitz was preparing to sign the instrument of unconditional surrender on behalf of the Third Reich in Flensburg on the Baltic Sea. One of the most important waterways of Europe, the Elbe runs from Czechoslovakia to the North Sea. One week earlier, the Americans and Russian armies had met at the German town of Torgau, agreeing that the Elbe's west side would become the American zone of occupation. The officer in the Jeep, Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Samuel Singer, was returning from a meeting with the Soviets and protocols surrounding the treatment of wounded non-combatants in their respective zones of occupation. Sam Singer had left his position as assistant head of surgery at Brooklyn Zion Hospital to enlist in the U.S. Army Medical Corps. Tall and slightly overweight, with thinning brown hair and an infectious smile, and an unlit Michon pipe loosely hanging from his lower lip, he looked more like someone's friendly uncle than a senior military officer. Still feeling the effects of the vodka, Singer asked his driver with an amused look. The Ruskies consume enormous amounts of the vile spirit. Can't keep up with them. We're just not used to drinking that much. Corporal Joe Murphy, a stout, dark-hired Irishman from Philadelphia, had been in the war since 1942. He had been driving for Colonel Singer for four months and enjoyed the officer's easygoing rapport with enlisted men. Nah. I'm good, he answered, the tone in his voice belying the way he felt. My dad was from the Emerald Isle, and though I grew up in Pennsylvania, my brothers and I learned how to drink like we were from the old country. So I was weaned on whiskey with a little Guinness thrown in. Suddenly, both men were shaken out of their abstraction by the deep roar of a fighter aircraft just above their heads, flying at treetop level towards the Russian zone. Silver Gray plane, its supercharged engine screaming at full throttle, arose out of the west and almost instantly disappeared, the red star on the underside of its wing having the only recognizable identifier. Holy fuck, shouted Murphy. Sorry about the language, sir. I was just caught by surprise. No need to apologize, Corporal. Those were the two exact words I was thinking to myself. That Russian plane is flying from the wrong direction. He's over our lines. What the hell does that mean? Big blue sky up there, sir, answered Murphy. Easy to get lost. I understand that, but the Elbe is a large river, not difficult to recognize from the air. I wonder what he was doing on our side. A mile further, they emerged from the canopy dirt side road onto the paved autobahn. They could see smoke ahead of them before they could confirm its source. A black convertible Mercedes staff car bearing SS insignia, had plowed into the ditch, dark gray smoke curling skyward from its hood. Looks like the Sturmovic found its mark, said Singer as Murphy slowed the jeep to a stop beside the burning wreck. Both men rushed to the disabled Mercedes. The first person they noticed within the crash debris was a driver in a black SS uniform lying in the ditch halfway under the car's undercarriage. He was in a bad way, both legs broken, and one shoulder shattered by a bullet, his arm hanging down, held only by the blood-saturated sleeve of his jacket. Another 23-millimeter round had gone through his upper thigh. Blood flowed freely down his leg, soaking his pants. A second figure dressed in greenish-gray Wehrmacht color lay a couple of yards away, crumpled against a tree. It appeared he had been ejected from the vehicle when it hit the ditch, his head smashing against one of the sturdy roadside oaks, 
breaking his neck, killing him instantly. Corporal Murphy, look after the wounded man and pull him away from the burning car. I'll see if there's anyone else in the vehicle. The engine fire had significantly increased and there was an immediate threat of explosion. The driver moaned loudly as Murphy pulled him clear of the wreck. Singer looked in the back of the car. Sprawled on the gray leather seat was a young woman, seemingly in her early 20s, with a silver dollar sized hole through her forehead. Blood from the wound had dyed her long blonde hair red. Her lifeless blue eyes stared up at the now empty sky. This one's dead, he yelled to the corporal, not even worrying about searching for a pulse. No one would survive a head injury of that magnitude and live. How's the other one? In lousy shape, sir, but he might make it if we can get him back to the aid station quickly enough. Let's go before this thing blows. Okay. As he turned to help the corporal tend to the driver's wounds, the woman's body moved. No, she's dead. This can't be, he muttered to himself in a moment of sheer panic. Then it shifted again, ever so slightly. Singer quickly grabbed the woman's blood-soaked coat and started to lift her off the seat. Now, what have we here? He exclaimed, his barely audible words getting stuck in his throat as the car's gas tank exploded, shooting a column of bright orange flame skyward. And that's it. Wow, thank you for sharing that. What a scene. I could really picture what was happening there. Oh, great. Thank you. You've captured media attention at, at a bunch of different points in your life. And one that jumps out, uh, you were 11 years old in a Toronto Star article, and you were talking about your escape with your father from Hungary and detailing your awe of the amazing milk machine. And we're wondering, is there anything you could tell us about that time in your life and how that might link into your current novel, if at all? Well, the Hungarian Revolution was a very exciting time for an 11-year-old that's lived a fairly sheltered life up until then, seeing bullets flying and uh, bombs exploding. I actually considered it more of a adventure than I think my parents did at the time. We were no quite doubt. concerned with what was going on. And we came to Canada and I was totally awed by technology and progress as uh, personified by a milk machine at Goose Bay, Labrador, which is an Air Force base where we landed. And I was able to get as much milk as I wanted to out of this machine, as opposed to in Hungary, where you had to stand in line at stores to get milk. And it was a rare commodity. So the Hungarian Revolution inspired me, and I included a segment in my book to events in Hungary during the Second World War, during Eichmann's time in Budapest and the roundup of Hungarian Jews during the war. So I did get a chance to include some of that in the book. So Michael, I read a quote from you, uh, it's on your website that says, my visits to Mauthausen, Berlin and Hitler's summer home at Eagle's Nest were the motivators for me to write between these walls. These places provided me with the inspiration and ideas for the plot and premise of the book. So could you tell us more about how that trip inspired you? Were there any specific happenings during that trip that inspired the novel? Very, very definitely. It was in Berlin and my wife and I were walking along a residential street when I noticed 
some little brass plaques in the sidewalk that commemorated the names of people that had lived in the buildings above those plaques that had been sent off to concentration camps by the Nazis during the war. So I started to think, what happened to the apartments that these people had occupied, that other people had taken over, who was living there now, how did they come into possession of it? And that's what started me thinking. And then we went on to the Eagle's Nest, which was in Berchtesgaden in Germany near Munich, which was Hitler's summer home. And we walked through and I was overcome with a feeling of history there of all the events that had taken place there before and during the Second World War and thought in combination of the brass plaques and what happened to the apartments that would form the basis of a interesting fiction, historical fiction novel. And from there, we went out to, on to Mauthausen, which is the place of a concentration camp that was located there during the Second World War that my father was incarcerated in from November of 1944 to May of 1945 until being liberated by the U.S. Army. And I thought, well, I could take a part of that and what I've known about that from personally hearing it from my father and including that in the book as well. So basically it transpired that it was about those three events that I wrote in the book. And then I also included in it my trip to Israel during the Second Lebanon War in 2006 and included that in the book as well. So there's quite a bit of personal history included in the book. Michael, when you're reading it, you can really get that sense that you, you experienced some of what you were writing. I certainly hope that that had come through because it was intended to. Yeah, I agree with Chris that definitely you could kind of feel the, the personal connection to, to some of the story there. So before we uh, let you get going, do you want to let our listeners know where they can buy your book, where they can find you online, all that good stuff? They can buy the book on Amazon. It's available in Kindle, in paperback, and in hardcover. All three of them are available. They're also available on Barnes & Noble online. And they can also look it up through my website, which is www.michaelnewmannovelist.com. Wonderful. They can follow all things Michael and learn about your upcoming sequel. Yes, that's going to go on the website as well. Awesome. I'm looking forward to reading that one too. <laughs> it's a little bit of a different genre than Between These Walls, but it follows some of the storyline of Between These Walls. Awesome. Well, we'll look forward to it. And Michael, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much, Chris and Brandy. It's greatly appreciated. Hi, I'm J.F. Garrard, author of The Undead Sorceress, an East Meets West vampire book about a mother trying to save her child from her evil soul-sucking grandmother, and publisher of Belief, a book showcasing writing by Asian writers, a perfect read for Asian Heritage Month. You're listening to Words with Writer podcast. 
The Canadian Authors Association is a wonderful community made up of both experienced and new writers who band together to help each other. The writing journey has ups and downs, and when things get tough, it's good to know that your peers at the Canadian Authors Association understands your pain and will be there to support you. Congratulations to Canadian Authors Association on 100 years of writers helping writers. Our next guest, Guglielmo Dizia, is an actor and writer who hails from Sicily. His artistic pursuits have led him to some of the greatest cities in the world, Rome, New York City, and eventually Toronto, where he now resides. He's a proud graduate of the Creative Writing Program at the University of Toronto's School of Continuing Studies. The Transaction, his debut novel, won the 2016 Marina Nimet Award, was a 2020 International Book Awards finalist, and was officially selected for the 2020 Cannes Film Festival Shoot the Book program. The novel is currently shortlisted for the 2020 Forward Indies Book of the Year Awards and the Crime Writers of Canada Awards of Excellence Best Crime First Fiction. He was also nominated 2020's Most Promising Author by the Miramachi Readers The Very Best Book Awards. Guglielmo, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you. We've talked about your novel quite a bit in the past on our show, so we're glad to have you here today. So to start out, could you tell us how you got the idea for the transaction? <laughs> this is one of the most dreaded questions. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Absolutely. Uh, we just went right for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> you know, it, in my experience, it's never just, you know, one thing. It's always a confluence of things, really. I think it just started with an image first that lingered, you know, in my consciousness and something that I read. Uh, things that I've seen, things that I wish I had not seen, you know, growing up in Sicily. And also there's a great deal of daydreaming, really. So it's all you know, a combination of all these things, really. But that image, the very first image, which I still remember, which is actually part of the excerpt that I'm going to be reading, that was the very first thing that, you know, started the whole thing. So I guess that would be what started the genesis of uh, the idea, I suppose, yeah. Awesome. Do you still find yourself daydreaming lots? <laughs> yes, all the time. It's <laughs> very important for writers, I think, the daydreaming. Yeah, not, not okay when you're with people and you daydream. <laughs> <laughs> you look like a weirdo, uh, but yeah, it's just the way it is. Well, that seems like a good way to segue us into you giving a reading. You're going to read from the transaction today, correct? Yes, yes. All right. The veins of burning myrrh, which rows of women doggedly fanning themselves, turn into fine mist. And the palpable humidity, not to mention the questionable personal hygiene of some of the mourners, are to blame for the lack of breathable air. 
To make things worse, the room temperature has now reached a febrile state. The feeling is like being inside some sort of living organism. The heat radiates with ever-rising pressure from body to body as it does through connecting tissues. A door across the room, until now hidden because of all the people standing in front of it, winds open, enough to let in a, a wedge of pale yellow light. The concerto, creaky chairs, accompanied by an almost choreographed turning of necks, follows. The door opens wider, revealing two silhouettes, a woman holding hands with a little girl. As they step inside and walk through a human corridor, the child breaks free and makes a run for the catafalque, stopping quite suddenly by the sensor on the left side of it. She's somberly dressed, far beyond her age, yet seemly. Her chestnut hip-long hair held back with a black velvet band softly cascades along her slender contours. She stands in absolute stillness, looking down at Tomazzini. The woman who ushered her in catches up with her and tries unsuccessfully to whisk her away. Marinella, the widow says in a broken, anemic tone, extending her arm. The child untangles herself from the woman, rushes to her mother and climbs onto her lap, gently letting her head find comfort on her mother's bosom. The woman, after a brief exchange of glances with a widow, reluctantly moves away from the catafalque and disappears behind the shadowy figures. At that moment, the little girl gets off her mother's lap just as quickly as she got on and moves close to Tomazzini's body. The widow leans forward to stop the child, but gives up in mid-motion. The girl is standing by her father's face, waving her hand over it to disperse the cluster of flies feasting on it. Then, all of a sudden, the child aims her large almond-shaped eyes of a striking aquamarine color in my direction. And even though I'm well aware it's impossible for her to see my face where I'm standing, at least not fully. She seems to be staring right at me. Wonderful, thank you. That was an excellent reading and I really wanna read the rest of the book now, so. Uh, I, I didn't want it to stop. <laughs> you know, I, in my experience, uh, you know, I, I prefer to keep it short. You know, long readings can be, you know. Fair enough. Well, and you don't wanna to give too much away because everybody has to go and get your book now and read the rest of the story, so. That's right. So as I was saying, that was exactly the first scene that came to mind, that, that burial chamber with the little girl standing by the, 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 the corpse, basically, yeah. That was it. Right. I didn't even know awesome. what it meant at, at the beginning, but that was the, the image that I had that lingered for so long, so yeah. Cool, that's, that's amazing. So we have mentioned you and the transaction several times on this show in the past uh, when we're talking about our member news section because of the number of awards you are winning and shortlisted for. We're always hearing about you, which is awesome. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you go about getting your book into these contests and award programs? Yeah. Well, you know, if, if you're publishing with an indie press, you know, it's a no-brainer. You should apply to all the India words that are out there. There's, you know, of course, some of them, you know, are more thematic than others. So you have to, you know, check their, their the guidelines. First thing is you have to really know your book, what it can, what it cannot do. That's the first thing. 
that being said, it's always very difficult to predict what, what book, which book is going to win. It's very difficult. Sure, one could make an argument that perhaps the bigger awards have more of an aesthetic, so a certain type of book is going to have more chances than others. But when it comes down to indie awards, it's pretty open and, and, and they have categories. So it's great. So do it. It's a great way to promote your book, to reach a larger audience. So just do it if you can afford it, of course. There are fees to pay. And often publishers don't really give you the money for those, don't pay for those. So right. it's an investment. You have to, you know. Invest in yourself and your book. Yeah, yeah I know that. You, you have to. My, I guess the biggest advice I can give is this. Don't, you know, if you're writing a book with the intention of winning an award, you will most likely fail. Because you're going to be tempted to adhere to aesthetics, you know, trends and so forth. You will fail. Write the book that you want to write. You know, be as unique as you can. Be you. Write the book that only you could write. And I guarantee you, it will get noticed if it's really genuine and it's really you. You know, that's, oh, that's the best advice I can give. Excellent <laughs> advice. Good advice. I love that. I do have a question about one contest in particular, because the transaction was officially selected for the 2020 Cannes Film Festival Shoot the Book program. And I guess that's where online pitch sessions give publishers the chance to present books selected for their adaptation potential. So what does being selected for that program mean for you? And does that mean we can expect to see a big screen version of the transaction? Well, that one is bittersweet. Well, it was supposed to be, you know, it was always live. It wasn't virtual. Uh, it only, it was basically virtual in 2020 because of the pandemic. So uh, that kind of, uh, it's bittersweet because it's really, it was thrilling for me, you know, to be accepted in the program. But, you know, the, the filmmaking industry is really going through a hard time as well. So they scaled back quite a bit. You know, they scaled back on acquisitions, options, and so forth. So uh, it's out there. Well, we don't know what's going to happen. We'll see. I'm, I, I haven't given up, obviously. I'm actually writing a screenplay based on the novel in Italian. So I'm going to, yeah, the idea is to pitch it to Italian producers. I have some connections in Italy. So we'll see what happens. Nothing is set, but. You know, I'm hopeful. You know, yeah. And the the world seems to be moving in the right direction right now. So hopefully, we can see it, <laughs> see your dream come true. <laughs> see, yeah. Awesome. So you are a graduate of the creative writing program at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies. How did you find this schooling helped you with your journey of becoming an author? Oh, immensely. It was really a, a wonderful experience for me, uh, also because I was very fortunate to find the right teacher at the right time. You know, it was perfect. He helped me tremendously getting past the, the shame of writing. I wasn't sure that I could do it, that I had the skills to do it. And he really helped me through that. And uh, yeah, I love it. I loved it because it's a great, safe environment where you can actually, you can take risks, uh, fail, mm -hmm. <laughs> really fail. Uh, but you, know, you do it again and you do it better. That's, that's the spirit. You know, because if you go in with that, you know, with the intention of not failing, of doing everything perfect, forget it. You will fail. Because uh, you have to have, you know, uh, humility. Yeah. You have to fail to be better there's no other way it's just that's how we that's how we grow right exactly there's no other way so when you first started writing you had some self-doubts about 
your ability to to write it. Yeah, I didn't know if I was good enough. Okay. You know, that's that's a shame that that uh, I don't know. Uh, also, you know, because I'm writing in a language, in my my second language. You know, that's mm-hmm. got to uh, be challenging. Yes, it was, and it was fun. And it was, you know. Um, I don't know. It was, uh, I had to get past that roadblock, really self-imposed roadblock. That's all it was, really. And this teacher was fantastic. And he just, we clicked right away. As I said, I was very fortunate like that. Uh, By the way, his name is Michel Basilier. Great, fantastic writer. I've been tossing around the idea, strongly contemplating it, of taking the program myself. So I should try to find him as a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there are great teachers, other great teachers, uh, Catherine Graham fantastic teacher as well just i loved everybody lee Gowen, such a great guy that's i absolutely loved my experience there i really did Wonderful. and i highly recommend it you know especially you know if if, if for anything that's to 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 experiment to do things you wouldn't normally do no awesome you've studied acting you uh, built a career as, a, as an actor so we're curious how did you rediscover your passion for writing and what made you decide to refocus on that passion well i don't know if there was a moment that i decided to to reshift the focus it just happened and again the the creative writing program was part of it that made me sort of refocus on that uh, i just i just discovered how much i loved it and I, I remember when I uh, when I used to do a lot of acting, and I, I always had the ten, the, the um, ten, I wanted to rewrite what I was reading. I had that impulse, so it was always there. It's just it finally came out. So on our previous yeah. episode, we had an actress on Andrea, and she said basically she read so many of these scripts and things that she didn't feel were really capturing the type of character she was playing well. And she thought, you know what? I can write this better. And that's why she started writing her own. Um, I I, I thought, yeah, I I totally understand that. It happens (laughs) all that. You know, if you have that, it happens all the time. You read something, ah, this could be better. You know, um, so yeah, that's that's how it started. And I have to say, acting was very, very important in my writing process. It, it, it really helped me with dialogue, the musicality of it. Very, very important to me. Um, I feel I feel like that could actually be a really big advantage to a writer because a lot of writers' dialogue is something that they struggle with a lot. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, yeah, so often it's too intellectual. It's it so- probably sounds great in their heads, but you know, it, they, they don't. You have to sound it out. You have to try it. You have to act it out to, to get the rhythm right, to get the timing right. You know? mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that it has to always sound very, very natural. That's not what I'm saying. It has to have an, you know, an internal rhythm. That's very important. And it has to sound uh, realistic, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could argue, what, what does that mean, realistic? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's about flow. It's about rhythm. It's about musicality. Very important. I often in my dialogue, I count the syllables that I'm putting in, uh, really counting the, for, for the rhythm. Okay. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very important. That way it always sounds good. <laughs> well, that's the idea. Yeah, that's yeah. the idea. Awesome. Well, you've, you've given us some, some great advice here today. Really appreciate having you on the show. Before we let you get going, is there anything else you want to say to our listeners? And can you tell them 
where they can buy the transaction, where they can find you on social media, all that good yes. stuff. Uh, well, you can find the transaction everywhere, basically, uh, from the publisher uh, directly, if you like. Uh, you can go on my website, www.vilalmoritia.com. Uh, it's literally, literally everywhere, your local stores as well. Um, the audio version of the transaction is coming out soon. Ooh, nice. Yes. Is it is it read by yourself? No, no. no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, someone else. Uh, great actor, <laughs> great actor. And you can find me on all platforms, basically Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. welcome our next guest, Gordon K. Jones. Gordon and his wife, Tina, live in Toronto with their two cats, Crumpet and Muffin. Defending the inland shores, Newfoundland in the War of 1812, a nonfiction which was published in 2016, was his first published work. His new novel, Saving Tiberius, a crime fiction published by Bookland Press, was released as a trade paperback and as an ebook in October 2020. Later this year, it will be released as an audiobook. Before he became a writer, he worked in the financial industry. A former saber fencer, he now enjoys his time away from writing playing pickleball. He is a member of the Canadian Authors Association, the Crime Writers of Canada, and is a social media volunteer for Annex Cat Rescue. Thank you for joining us today, Gorge. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome to the show. I, I think it's awesome about the the saber fencer actually, because I I was looking for a program to to learn that, and then I wound up taking a sword fighting course with Emma actually. But oh, cool. it was fun. Yeah. Well, there were uh, a lot of interesting things in your bio. You play pickleball. Yeah. <laughs> Discovered that uh, a couple of years ago, but now I haven't been able to play because of the pandemic. So, yeah. And also, you volunteer for the Annex Cat Rescue. I rescued some cats at one point, and we had to we we went to them because we found four kittens in a box and didn't know what to do. Right. So, hey, right. Yeah. So no, they very good. So that's great. Well, our our two cats. Okay, they came from the Annex Cat Rescue. I'm a social media volunteer. I do uh, two posts every Saturday, cat fact about something or other. You know, just to keep you know people tuning into the sites, and then they'll read something like that, and then they'll see a post about a kitten for uh, adoption. So, and it's been working. That's awesome. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. follow them now. Thank you for telling yeah, us yeah, that. Yeah. We're, <laughs> we're both we're both cat people. You'll probably see Brandy's at some point today. <laughs> jump up when she hears us recording, so yeah, you never. Yeah. <laughs> she loves to look at the guests. Well, there's mine. You can't see because of glare, but she's up in the window. Sitting in the window. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your shadow <laughs> yeah. uh, so Gord, i actually i wanted to ask you too so your first fictional novel saving tiberius actually features a cat uh, tiberius 
who mysteriously cures itself of diabetes and may hold the key to a cure. So speaking of all these cats, is the character of Tiberius built off of a particular one you know? Yes, it is. We had a cat, Morgan, who had uh, diabetes, and we'd have to give him a shot every two or three days. And then sometimes he'd go 20 days, 25, I think 28 days is the longest he would go without a shot. And I was trying to think of a book to write, uh, a fictional book, and he jumped up in the desk and was kind of poking me. And my wife was away on a business trip. So I was responsible for giving him the shots and taking his blood, blood counts and all that. So he's bugging me. I'm going, okay, just leave me alone. And yeah, I'm going to have to take your blood in a little while. And uh, what is this? You've, got, you've gone 20 days without a, without a shot? And then suddenly it hit me. Hey, 20 days without a shot? What if he cured himself? And that, that was the whole basis for this. Nice. And in the end, uh, he was diabetic for about 14 years. And it was cancer that got him in the end. So, right, it's always sad. Yeah. I had a we had a diabetic cat and did the shots twice a day for years. Oh, and you know about pricking the ears and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Then, yeah. yeah, took a while to get good at that. But <laughs> <laughs> my wife was great at it, and then me, I just the cat would see me and Morgan to see me and go like, uh, uh-uh, I know what you're coming here for. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want any of that. <laughs> Well, that seems like a good point then. If you would like to give us a reading from Saving Tiberius and we can hear a little bit about the Morgan-inspired cat in your book. (laughs) That sounds good. Uh, What I'm going to do is I'm going to just start off right at the beginning of the book, chapter one, which kind of sets the scene for the the whole book, just kind of describes the background of the cat. So here we go. Beth Poole smirked as she looked across the table at the man who just issued one of the most absurd statements she'd ever heard. Really? You're really asking me to believe it it just disappeared? Morgan Watson smiled and nodded to her. He didn't know why he had brought it up. Supper had been excellent. He loved pub grub. Plus, the conversation had been flowing very easily between them. Whenever he was on a first date, he always followed one rule. Never bring up the subject of his cat, Tiberius. He knew many women enjoyed hearing people talk about their cats, but whenever he spoke of his, he ended up telling the entire story. Although true, it sounded so unbelievable, he felt he came off as just another lying jerk trying to impress a woman. In the past, whenever he had brought up the subject on a first date, there was never a second. Really, Beth repeated, it just disappeared, and you expect me to believe that, that your cat cured itself completely of diabetes. Why did he have to go and break his rule? He knew he should never mention that he had a cat which seemed to entirely beaten the disease until after maybe a few days, probably more than a few, and certainly not on a first date. Perhaps it was because he already knew her for a while. He had met Beth in a yoga class he took every Wednesday. Although his buddies kidded him about his classes, he felt he really needed them. Morgan was a fencer, and the footwork involved really tightened up his body, especially his hips. Yoga helped open him back up, and he felt stretched and loose when class was over. It seemed no matter how many people showed up for class, Beth always managed to be on the mat beside, in front, or behind him. He found her easy to talk with, so after five weeks of chatting before and after class, he finally decided to ask her out. Dinner and drinks for her first date was a natural. She said yes and decided to hook up at a downtown craft beer pub after work the next night. Now, instead of enjoying the evening with her, he found himself on the defensive. 
Well, it sure seems that way, Morgan said, knowing he had to do his best to explain and make it sound like the truth and not some pile of crap. He picked up his beer, took a sip, and looked around as if seeking help. You see, Tiberius has... No, sorry. I mean, once had diabetes. It's really hard to explain. I adopted Tiberius from a cat rescue when he was just a little kitten, and a year later, he developed diabetes. I had to test his blood sugar twice a day and give him a shot about every three days to keep his glucose levels below 10. Then, after about two and a half years, his levels stabilized on their own. It's been that long now since I've given him a shot. And you're sure he had diabetes to begin with. That's what Dr. Evingham, his vet, said. Interesting, Beth commented while giving me a look which said she really wasn't sure about whether she should buy into her story or not. So, why the name Tiberius? I'm a bit of a Star Trek fan. If you know the franchise, James T. Kirk was a captain. The T being short for Tiberius. Damn, this could be strike two, thought Morgan right after answering. First, she hears what she considers a ludicrous story and now thinks I'm a full of Trekkie. Next, she'll be asking if I live in my parents' basement. Beth looked down at her watch and then back at Morgan. It's almost 8.30. I gotta get going. Remember I told you had plans later on tonight? Yes, you did, he answered, managing to stop their surfer to, add, to request the bill. I'll pay so you can get going. No, we're splitting the bill. Maybe I'll let you pick up the tab next time. Let's talk about it next Wednesday after yoga. Bingo, she wants to go out with me again. She does a thing up a deck. Morgan walked Beth out to the sidewalk and hailed the cab for her. They said their goodbyes with a hug, and she gave him a kiss on the cheek before she climbed into the rear seat and sped off into the night. There, we just leave it there. Awesome story. I was really into it, and then I was like, hey, I'm a full-on Trekkie, because I'm wearing my Star Trek shirt. But... <laughs> well, that whole, con- that whole thing about Tiberius was kind of a conversation and what my wife and I had when Morgan passed away and we we're thinking about getting the second cat. I had started throwing out Trek. I said, let's name him uh, Spock. No, let's mo- name him uh, uh, Spot. Well, Spot's not even a cat's name. What was Data's name? Cat's name. No, no. So then I, I suggested Tiberius, and she said, like, no, Star Trek. And I said, well, what if I wrote a book with a cat named Tiberius? She goes, okay, I'll have to, have to get a cat <laughs> named Tiberius. And so when I came up with this book idea a few months later, that's where that conversation came that's from. That's how you came from. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So say Tiberius, that it's coming out as an audio book later this year. That's exciting news. So how did that come about? Like, how did you decide to make an audiobook version? What is the process been like? My publisher decided that's a good way to uh, get into the field. So he contacted a lot of us and just to to see if we could do a two-chapter demo, just to see how it comes out and how it sounds. And he really liked mine and he liked a couple of the others too. And he says, well, can you do it? So uh, I bought a program and been at it now for two months. It took me about six weeks to really catch on to how to edit properly and how to slow, like I'm a fast talker. And so how to like really slow down my beat and and my tempo of of reading and yet still get the nuances. And and so you're not just flat level. That took me about six weeks. So now I can pretty much do a chapter a day and fully edited in that. And I was supposed to be finished a couple of weeks ago, but then when I got done the entire recording for the book, which is over six hours, I went back to start listening to, uh, to edit chapter one through, and I found out how fast I was talking, so I had to redo it. It's funny because now 
I find I'm talking about 10%, 12% slower because something that was usually a chapter 10 minutes long is now 11 minutes long. It was 20 minutes long. It's now like 22 minutes long. So I've really slowed down, but there's been some pitfalls along the way. The other day, I know how to say the word sustained. He sustained injuries. And then you try and read it out loud. And suddenly I can't say that word. Yeah. <laughs> a character in my book is an endocrinologist. What, which is easy to put down on paper when I go to pronounce, I had to go to Google pronounce to learn how to pronounce the name. <laughs> so it almost makes me feel that from now on when I write, I'm going to use no word longer than, than six letters. It just. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it Ray, is. It's, a, it's a completely different experience. Uh, it, it is. It is. And then I don't enunciate, so I have to concentrate on enunciating and not use my usual lazy mouth way of talking. Uh, it is just totally, it, it exhausts me at the end of the day. Where a five-syllable word becomes one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and even something like a doctor works for the Constance Addison Research Laboratories. Suddenly, I can't say the word Constance. I get the word Constance down, and suddenly, when I get to laboratories, it comes out laboratories, which, <laughs> No. Laboratory. And I know it's spelled that way, but no, Constance Addison Research Laboratories. No, Constance Addison Research Laboratories. It's just, it's, just, it's so frustrating. Sometimes I take a look because I just, I, I originally I stopped, would stop and re record and just so painful. So now I just keep on going. So I have the same voice tone all the way through. And I've seen me struggle through a sentence that when I've gone back, I spent 40, 40 seconds trying to say half a sentence. <laughs> then I attach yeah. another half sentence and I go like, come on, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with my mouth? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny thing. <laughs> uh, we, we have also found that doing this. So you're not alone. <laughs> yeah, I, I think everybody is doing it for the first, second time is, uh, yeah, going through the same kind of stress. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so Gordon, the nonfiction book that you wrote, Defending the Inland Shores, uh, Newfoundland in the War of 1812, was your first published book. Your most recent book, Saving Tiberius, is your first fictional novel. Just wondering, why did you choose to change your writing focus from nonfiction to fiction? I've always wanted to be a fiction writer, but my wife and I were in Newfoundland, I forget how many years ago, before the book came out anyways, and we're on Signal Hill and they're having a reenactment battle from the 1600s that actually never took place. And, uh, but they're always fun, cannons going off, muskets going off. And we started talking to the people around us and about the War of 1812, because they have a big history and nobody knew about it. I went, oh, so I came back to Toronto and I started looking up to try and find a book to read about it. I read a lot about the War of 1812 and Newfoundland was heavily involved. I knew that. So there must be a book out and there's no book. So I thought, okay, well, I'll write the book. So I went ahead and wrote the book. So when it was done, then I started, okay, let, let's try a fictional book. And that's where, when I came up with Tiberius, I got another fiction at their publishers right now, hoping he's going to approve it, fingers crossed. And I've written a sequel uh, the first draft or a sequel to Saving Tiberius. But my goal ultimately is to either have a book or a magazine article written about every, every single province in Canada and territory. So I'm going to wow. be bouncing back and forth. Yeah, that's an amazing goal. Absolutely. Now, hopefully it's achievable. 
I'm from Nova Scotia, so I think that's the next one you should do. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's from there too, so yeah, it's probably oh. next up. <laughs> I was going to write a book, and it was going to be Great Disasters of Canada, and, and it's about a disaster uh, of each province and territory. But after I did Newfoundland, and I just, I was so depressed. And the one about Montreal was so depressing about 89 pe- kids dying in a fire that I thought, I'm going to have to go into therapy if I write a book like this. So then I went into fiction. <laughs> well, Gord, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Is there anywhere the listeners can go to learn more about you and buy copies of your books? I'm on Goodreads uh, and my book's available at Amazon at Chapters. Chapters has both the ebook and the print version. Apple Books has the ebook version. And of course, it's in bookstores. And if the pandemic ever gets over, I hope they do a few readings. But, uh, and I also have a website, www.gordonkjones.com. Awesome. Perfect. Thanks so much for being here. It was a lot of fun. Hello, I'm Daniel Bryan, author of Rerouted, a collection of linked short stories in which myth, mirth, and mayhem are never far away. And you are listening to Words with Writers podcast. The Canadian Authors Association is very supportive of the writing community. They organize readings and get-togethers for emerging writers like myself, and they provide a network of friends and contacts, because we all know that writing is kind of a solitary endeavor. It is nice to meet others who understand the horrors of a blank page. Congratulations to the Canadian Authors Association on celebrating 100 years. Please help us give a warm welcome to our last guest of the day, Genevieve Chornenki. Genevieve is a dispute resolution consultant and emerging writer based in Toronto, Canada. When she was in grade four, the teacher noted on her report card has excellent story writing ability, which should be encouraged as much as possible. No one in the family noticed nor did first prize for poetry in high school relieve her of her household chores like washing dishes and sweeping the kitchen floor. Eventually, she figured out that writing is about persistence, not permission. It also helps to have something to say. Genevieve holds the Master of Laws in Alternative Dispute Resolution from Osgoode Hall Law School, a certificate in creative writing from the University of Toronto, and a certificate in publishing from Ryerson University. Her works include Bypass Court, a dispute resolution handbook, and When Families Start Talking, a CBC Ideas radio documentary. Visit her at www.genevievechornenki.com or email her at 
gac at chornenki.com. Genevieve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. We're thrilled you could join us. <laughs> You're a newer member to Canadian Authors Association. Welcome to the group and, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Looking yeah. forward to getting more involved. Well, the podcast is always a good way to start. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and once everything opens up again and we're allowed to get together in person and get to meet each other, it'll be good. But for now, the virtual is working great. Now, your book, Don't Lose Sight, details your experience contending with a medical mistake and the aftermath of that. Would you mind telling us a bit about that experience and what made you decide to write a book about it? So the book's in three parts, and the first part's called Nothing is Obvious to the Uninformed, and that was me. So I had worn glasses or contact lenses since I was about 15, 16, whatever, and I always thought that if there was something wrong with your sight, you put something in front of your eye, and that fixed it. But when I had these unusual symptoms, I kept thinking, okay, it's the contact lenses, or I got to polish my eyeglasses or something, I don't know. And when I actually went to have, I made inquiries twice, and I was told that I was experiencing an optical migraine, which I never had migraines, and I equated migraines with headaches, so I said doesn't make any sense. Anyway, to make a long story short, it was a much more serious problem than that, which resulted in three different surgical procedures. And so my initial motivation in the book was just to, wow, if this wasn't obvious to me, I can't be the only one maybe this is something other people should be aware of. And when I workshopped my pieces in different classes and so forth, people always said, yeah, you know, this is something that other people would appreciate knowing about. So the first motivation was just informational, I guess. But then there was an aspect of, I'm going to call it what it is, <laughs> score settling. Not with the person who missed the mistake, but when I made a complaint to the regulatory body the lawyer who handled the file was exceedingly disrespectful to me. And that rankled for years and years and years and years. So the middle part of the book was kind of like, I wanted to say, hey, I can get even and I'm not going to use your name. But however, that part changed, that changed. And I've now completely let go of that because my editor pointed out to me the difficulties with that. So the second motivation was scorekeeping. But then as time went on, and as I learned more about writing and became more alert to the skill involved and the craft, things changed even more. And what I was more interested in was conveying something so that people would have their own experience, so that people would be engaged. They might feel something. I don't, you know, what it didn't matter to me what they felt. They might be amused. They might be entertained. And so really at the end of the day, that's what my motivation was in completing the manuscript and submitting it for publication to engage people. Awesome. Did you find writing the experience helped you let go of that? That's a very good question. I couldn't get to where I got without having gone through the, the chronology. This happened and then this happened and then this happened. However, I also couldn't have gotten to where I got if my editor hadn't said to me, you know, it sounds like you're making a case here. I said, I don't understand what you're saying. Well, no, you just keep going on and on about it. And so that intervention on his part 
was absolutely essential. And I let things sit for a month or more before I went back in and said, how can I make this interesting to readers now that I've metabolized the experience? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Awesome. On that topic, maybe you could give us a little bit of a taste of what it sounds like. Okay. So I'm going to read from a chapter that has to do with um, me going to India to watch site restoring surgery through a charity that I came, became aware of in, in Canada. So I'll, I'll read about that. And the chapter is called I Hath Not Seen. I began to fund eye surgeries in the developing world through Operation Eyesight Universal, a Calgary-based charity dedicated to eliminating avoidable blindness. One day, a letter from the charity arrived in the mail. Would I like to purchase a place in the woman's tour and witness firsthand the eye care given by its local partners in India? I asked my husband, what do you think, William? I think you should go. The work's important to you and the tour is a once in a lifetime opportunity but I'll be away almost four weeks. Yeah, we'll miss you. What about the business? I am the business. You're having a good year. Paid work will be there when you get back. William, it's India. Another reason you should go. I had never aspired to visit the Indian subcontinent. India to me was a pastiche of secondhand impressions. Gandhi and Satyagraha, Mata Jaffrey and very spicy, delicious chickpeas from page 106 of Eastern Vegetarian Cooking. Dominique Lapierre, Mother Teresa, Kolkata, poverty, hunger, slums, human misery. What my mind assembled frightened me. I conjured suffering on a scale that would overwhelm me. I imagined anguish beyond amelioration. And yet I knew that the letter was as much an imperative as an invitation. I wrote to the charity enclosing a check. Was there a chance, I asked, that the money could be used to fund eye surgeries at a facility I would visit? Yes, I was told. My contribution would be used to sponsor a surgical eye camp that would take place while I was in India. So, as five-year-old Nicholas lay asleep in his bed in Toronto, the tooth fairy about to visit for the first time, I, his mother, was 13,000 kilometers away. The whitewashed walls of the eye hospital in Sampetta pulsated in the morning sunlight that was, by 8 a.m., already insistent. Those awaiting surgery assembled in the courtyard and on the steps, men and women with arms and legs projecting from hospital clothing, bright pink bottoms and pure white tops. Traveling to the hospital by bus the previous day, I had seen a man leading a woman along a path that stretched down and away from a bright green field. She was without sight, and he guided her by means of her sari, the end of which was caught up in his right hand. He in front, she behind, the pair progressing slowly. Was that woman here now awaiting surgery, I wondered? Was she here among the others? My life was not that of these women and men. Our context and surroundings were different, very different. Still, I had some sense of what it was like to live with compromised eyesight, to misjudge distances, to see stairs where there were none, and level ground where there were stairs, to be helpless in a darkened movie theater needing to hold William's hand or shirt tail, depending on how fast he was moving. But unlike the woman being led by her sari, I had never experienced total sight loss. An accident of birth put me in a time and place where I was able to receive timely care whenever I needed it. The hospital's head surgeon told us we could go into the operating theater two at a time. Only 10 minutes each, he instructed, 
10 minutes, we repeated to each other, no touching or questions, no making noise, no noise. When it was my turn, I stood at the head of a bed and looked down at what the surgeon had just removed from his patient's eye, a dense, opaque, light-blocking piece of protein, a malevolent pearl as big as the nail on my baby finger, a piece of seemingly benign debris now inert in a kidney bowl. Holy God, that just came from the eye of another human being? That was the thief that stole sight? I had come to India for that moment, come to witness directly another's release from blindness. I had waited with increasing anticipation as the tour made its way across the Indian subcontinent, finally arriving at this place. And now I had seen it, seen the ultimate. But even as that image settled, another emerged, and what I saw then had nothing to do with the eyes. I perceived with an organ I cannot name the confluence of two daily lives. I saw two people, me, the one standing by the kidney dish, the other supine under the sheets. We were carried along by a river. The liquid ligature curved from the operating theater in India to my office in Canada, from the gurney in Sompetta to the desk in Toronto, where I prepared invoices and later slit open envelopes with checks from which my donations were made. Moving water jostled the two of us together in a fleeting exchange, then swirled us away from each other to bob, float, and paddle in distant eddies from one day to the next. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That was excellent. That's a wonderful, wonderful piece, uh, Genevieve. You describe yourself on your website as a wordsmith and dispute resolver. What does that mean exactly? You know, I think that is actually aspirational. A number of years ago, when I was updating my fictitious photograph and my website, I decided to reorder things and to put first, it looks like a composite wordsmith and dispute resolver, but to put first what I actually want to do, what I feel I have more aptitude for, what I'm interested in investing my time in. So I put wordsmith first and dispute resolver second, even though you use words in resolving disputes. But I have to say, for dispute resolution as a professional thing, a lot of it is about talking. So if you conduct a mediation, people come to talk. If you conduct an arbitration, people come to talk to convince you. And what I noticed was that I was always finding ways to move what I was doing more towards writing. And then over time, I started to educate myself more. And I, that's when I did the certificate in publishing and certificate in creative writing. So that's what it means. It means who I am, but who I really am. Right. <laughs> I like that. I like it too. <laughs> we did take a look at your website. You say you've been applying your love of working with words to the field of dispute resolution since 1989. Mm -hmm. Clearly the type of words you use and where you place them are very important and as we know, that can change over time, right? The types of words we use, the terms. Can you tell us any notable changes you've experienced when it comes to that? You know, I wish I could. I mean, there are changes that are going on socially around words, things that are considered to be appropriate and not appropriate, etc. But in the field of dispute resolution itself, 
I'm not sure a lot has changed, particularly in mediation. Mediators are trained to flatten things down so that everybody talks in this neutral way. And I'll give you an example. And so if somebody says his office is decorated with the most revolting art, the mediator would say, ah, his office is decorated in a way that's not to your taste. Right? So I realize, and that's fine, that's done for a purpose because it's intended to flatten it out so somebody doesn't go off on their own tangent. But if you think about it in terms of writing, even informational writing, you don't want it to be quite that flat, right? It sort of takes the character and personality away. And I'm not sure that's changed. I think that's embedded in the field as a way of facilitating, quote, constructive conversations. I think it's a kind of flattening out. Yeah. Following up on that, you serve as editor-in-chief of the Canadian Arbitration and Mediation Journal, as well as editor of Spiritus, a periodic newsletter of Christchurch, Deer Park, Anglican Church in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tips for our listeners for when it comes to finding an editor for their work and crafting a successful relationship with that editor? Okay, a couple of things there, I would say. First of all, both of those positions that I have right now, I volunteered for. Okay. I joined the editorial board of the journal first, volunteered, and then when the editor-in-chief decided he'd had enough, I moved up to that. So I'd say the first thing, it sounds really simple, is making the need known, making known what you're looking for if you're looking for an editor. But I think you've also used a really important word, and, and the word is relationships, because for me, editing is all about relationships in so yes. many ways, okay? Uh, first of all, if someone's looking for an editor, I think they need to be really clear, what are they looking for? Are they looking for someone just to say, you've spelled this correctly, you've got the comma in the right place and your verb tenses are okay, that's fine. That's one kind. Or are you looking for someone, which is the kind of editing I prefer, where the editor is looking at it and saying, I'm not sure your intended readers will understand that. Or you've drawn an inference there, but I can't join the dots to get there. Or this is organized in such a way that's not particularly helpful to people. Because as somebody said in, in, to me recently, if I have to spend time trying to figure something out, I don't read it now, right? right? Especially because people read online, you have less of an appetite. So I'd say establishing the boundaries of it. And then it's so personal to the person being edited, right? Put it this way. I think the editor has to always explain the basis for the suggestions. Even if you're shamelessly writing something in, which I've been known to do on behalf of others, they need to understand what it is yeah. and they need to, to have their okay. And the editor needs to be able to do these things without changing the voice of the piece. So it's really a real challenge. And I would say your editor needs to have the enthusiasm for the work and the time to devote to it, because a lot of people have no idea how much time it takes to edit something. Even in the journal, a good article, I'm easily spending two hours on, easily. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, Genevieve, yes. thank you so much for coming on the show today. Okay. Can you tell our listeners uh, where they can buy your book, where they can follow you on social media? Well, that's a very good question. Okay, so... <laughs> Because 
that's my next project, all the promotion. But where they can buy it is they can go into their indie bookstore and ask for it and get it ordered. Or they can go on all the online places where you can get books, Amazon, you can go to Chapters Indigo, etc. So Wonderful. there's, yeah. Awesome. Well, Genevieve, thank you again. Well, thank you very much. I'm very impressed with the time and effort you put into these podcasts. Oh, <laughs> oh well, thank, thank you. you very much. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Wow, Chris, those were some phenomenal readings from our guests today. Absolutely, Brandy. Like I, I said in the interview, I've read Michael Newman's book, Between These Walls. It's an amazing book. And he's obviously a writer with a, a lot of personal experiences that he can filter into that, all of his stories. So that's that's amazing. Absolutely. Um, I have his book, actually. I just haven't read it yet, but it is on my to-read list in the next week or two. So, nice. yeah. I've heard your to-read book list is quite big. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yes. Many books to read in the next uh, couple weeks. It's nice to have Gord on, too, and we're all cat lovers, so I love the idea of his novel, Saving Tiberius, and that will be on my to-read list as well. <laughs> oh, Absolutely. And Guglielmo uh, Dizia, his his reading and his voice, like it's just it's awesome to listen to him read his book. And same thing, right? His his experiences in Sicily and Italy and around the world, probably getting to to see things. Absolutely. The only disappointing thing there was finding out that he's not the one narrating his audiobook because that <laughs> you could fall asleep listening to that. I think so. <laughs> and wonderful. Yeah. Genevieve to come on you know she's a, a brand new member to the group and we love to have new members on welcome them to the association hearing about her experience with her you know medical mishap and, and everything was amazing and she said something really interesting about the dispute resolution work that she does in that they they flatten things down to enable people to, to get to a resolution. And I, I thought that was very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds like an incredible story. So can't wait to read it. Exactly. All right. Well, now it's time for the news from our members. So I'm happy to say that Canadian authors, Toronto member, Karobi Sinha Das, a previous guest of this podcast actually, is releasing a new novel, Moonlight, the journey begins. We talked about that in, in our interview, I think, with her, right? She was talking about that book, and we were both really excited for it. So I'm really glad that that's happening. Yes, we did. And isn't it funny? That was our second episode. Yeah. And so now on our 13th episode, we get to talk about this book that she was talking about last year actually coming out. So very, very cool. So the book is about when... Chani Ray turns 13, two things happen to change the course of her entire life. 
Her father dies suddenly, and she discovers a clue to the mystery of her missing grandmother, a child bride who had disappeared without a trace. Everyone in her family had accepted that as fate, but the fact that her body was never recovered convinced Chanmi that she might one day be able to solve the mystery and reinstate honor to her family's name. Soon after her own wedding at 19, a journey by train turns perilous, but Chani manages to escape death, teams up with another victim, and flees to a nearby village. Here, by random chance, she meets her grandmother's maid, and suddenly the history of her family takes on a sinister note. Ooh, I'm excited. Moonlight, The Journey Begins will be published this summer. For now, you can see the book trailer on YouTube by searching Official Trailer for Moonlight, The Journey Begins. Or you can find the YouTube link on our member news page on the CAA National website. Congratulations, Perobi. And in other news, Pamela Yoon Elkerbout, a member of the Toronto Branch Executive Committee, will be featured on an upcoming episode of the podcast, Diversity and Inclusion on Spotify. The podcast mission is to celebrate the contributions of Africans both on the continent and within the diaspora. And Pamela will be joining to discuss Canadian Author Association's commitment to diversity and inclusion. And lastly, Chris and I have a little news of our own to share this month. Uh, Words with Writers podcast was featured in an article entitled Three Podcasts for a Lover of Books and Words, written by Yoram Choi and posted on Boldface, the official blog of Editors Toronto. So yay for us, Chris. <laughs> Absolutely, Brandy. <laughs> yay. <laughs> uh, Yoram wrote a great article for podcast enthusiasts and word lovers, and we're thrilled to be included with the other two amazing podcasts. So that brings us to the end of our 13th episode and our special double feature show celebrating one whole year on the air, 1,000 downloads, and the 100th anniversary of Canadian Authors Association. Congratulations on 100 years of writers helping writers from Brandy and I and the rest of the Toronto branch. So remember, folks, watch out for our 1,000 Downloads Celebration Contest details and subscribe to the Membership Book Catalog before May 31st to have your book cover included in the Centennial Puzzle. Thanks for listening. Okay, see you next month. Bye, everyone. Bye.